Here in the center of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches His disciples and by extension us to pray, forgive us our trespasses or our debts in this translation as we forgive those who trespass against us. Okay, I'm st- I have one sentence into my sermon notes, so forgive me, but, but this might be really helpful for you. So in this translation, which I think is the ESV, is that right, English Standard Version? It says, forgive us our debts. Um, that's, that's a good translation um, of that word in Greek. Um, but in the, the commentary where it says trespasses, that's actually a different Greek word. You, if you don't know, Jesus didn't speak English. He, as the Son of God, He's perfectly capable of speaking English. But Jesus in His humanity spoke Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew, um, as best we can guess. Um, and, uh, and, and these are different Greek words, the debts and the trespasses. And if you move over to the Gospel of Luke, where the writer of the Gospel of Luke tells, has a similar prayer where Jesus' disciples, they teach us to pray, and He says, Father, holy is Your name. Your kingdom come, your will be, your kingdom come, uh, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and, and he says, forgive us our sins. And so sometimes when you see different translations or different churches use different versions of the Lord's Prayer, it's because the text actually gives us permission to, to lean into the different connotations of these words as they have been passed down to us by the apostles of Jesus and through the history of the church. There must be something about debts, something about trespasses, like failures, misses, and there must be something about this sort of baked word sin that, that all, we need all of these things when we're thinking about what to do with the Lord's Prayer here. I'm going to work pretty heavy with the word debt tonight because I think it gets at the core of some things. But that's, that's free. That's just another thing not in my notes. Okay, good luck. Okay, here we go. Um, there are few things which, are, which, are, which so distinguish God's kingdom from the kingdoms of this world than forgiveness. It is a hallmark of God, and therefore, it is supposed to be a hallmark of God's people. People who are so bold as to lay claim to the freedom and confidence they have in being forgiven by God, and who so generously forgive others. This is how God wants His people to be known. Forgiveness is key in the kingdom. The first word in Jesus' public ministry Anybody know what the very first word in the gospel accounts, when Jesus came out of the scenes and began to, he lived 30 years down the street as some guy that was known as the carpenter's son. Apparently, that's what it means to be perfect. Not an influencer. That's probably fine too. But that's just not how Jesus lived. He lived down the street as the carpenter's son. Perfect. 30 years. But when he came out in, onto the scene and he walked out of the synagogue one day and he started doing his thing, anybody know what the first word he said is in his public ministry? Repent. It's the first word. Repent. It's a hard word, but it's a word pregnant with hope. Repent means change. That's actually what it means. So I, I don't know how it's been used in your life or what you think about it, but at least when it was said, uh, our best guess, and how it was heard at the time of Jesus is when he said repent, it means change. It would be as if everybody was mingling and talking and there was a buzz and the music was on and the lights were low and I walked up to the stage and I grabbed the microphone and I just leaned into the microphone and I said, change. Okay. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, change. Your thoughts, your direction, the things you're placing your hope in, every single one of us and all of us together need to turn and start walking in a different direction. 
This is the first word in Jesus' public ministry. Maybe there's a reason the crowd never got too big. I said it's word pregnant with hope because he says the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. So if you, the, the full sentence that we've been given is that he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or, or the kingdom of God is near, depending on the gospel that you're reading and the translations you're using. Repent for the kingdom of God is so near that you could almost touch it. It's hopeful because the reason Jesus is saying change is because you can. The reason he's saying turn, everybody start going in a different direction now. In response to the fact that the kingdom of God made manifest to us in the Son of Jesus has drawn so near to you that new possibilities are right here. You don't have to keep living the way you've been living. I know repentance is hard, but it's also hopeful if you have found that certain patterns are not working. When you meet Jesus, you are not a blank slate. You and I are not innocent. We are not free agents, unaffiliated. We are clinging and following and worshiping beings which are bound to other gods, and we have other commitments which have nothing to do with Jesus or His kingdom. And so He comes onto the scene and He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. This call for repentance, this idea that there is something wrong which needs to be dealt with, isn't something that Jesus nor His disciples begin to shy away from. Jesus says, I have come for the sick, not for the healthy. So if you're walking into this room and you're like, I'm pretty good, man. Jesus said he didn't come for you. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came for sinners. The apostle Paul would say, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John, the brother of, matter of fact, if anybody's taking notes, let me just give you some passages. I don't know where the sick one is, okay? Um, I actually don't know where the righteous one is either, but it's multiple times in the gospel accounts, and you could Google those words. Okay, there you go. Um, and we put these on a podcast so you can listen to it again. Okay. Um, the apostle Paul says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's got to be Romans chapter 3 or 5 or 6. Okay, one of those two. It's probably in all three of those things in some place. Someplace. John, the brother of Jesus, says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's 1 John chapter 1. We hear Peter. I'm, I'm trying to give you just different people who were influential and wrote different letters that we have in this library we call the New Testament. Just so you can see that this is widespread, this idea that something needs to change. We hear Peter telling the first 3,000 people of the church that every one of them needs to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's in Acts chapter 2. At my church, just so you can see the continuity in some of these things, at my church where I worship on Sunday with my family, before we come to the communion table each week, we all say this prayer of confession together. Like a whole church says this. We say, we confess that we have sinned against you, God, by thought, word, and deed, in what we have done and in what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have, lo- we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. 
for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Every week, my whole church says that together. We need to be forgiven for our spiritual lives as much as we need bread for our physical lives. You, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, are forgiven ones. Our relationship is founded upon forgiveness offered to us in Jesus Christ. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God is shown off as a God of forgiveness. His kindness and mercy are everlasting. He's slow to anger and quick to forgive. As a matter of fact, after fall break, we're going to be preaching through the book of Jonah, which is an Old Testament prophet. And one of the reasons Jonah, you can read about this in Jonah chapter 4, but we'll, we'll also talk about it in a number of weeks. Um, one of the reasons Jonah ran from God, as a matter of fact, the reason Jonah says he ran from God is because he knew God would forgive his enemies. He basically said, I knew you would do this, God. It's just like you to forgive. That's why Jonah's upset. This belief, this thought that God is forgiving and gracious and His mercy is abounding and everlasting when it comes home to our hearts, that, for, that God is this forgiving, when it comes home to our hearts, which I don't know if it's come home to yours, but when it does, it is almost too good to be true. Almost. There is no way to out the grace of God. I don't care what your parents say. I do care what your parents say. Or your pastors say. There's no way to out the grace of God. There's no sin too much or sins too many to shake his offer. Among the many reasons Jesus came among us is so that we could know that this forgiveness is sure. We did the unthinkable, friends. The worst possible thing anyone could imagine. We did it. No one in this room, no one in this room, during the, times that, the time that you've been alive, no one in this room has done anything worse than what we did to Jesus. Betraying Him and killing Him. And still His love is sure. Still His forgiveness is certain. With His dying breath, He cries out, Father, forgive them, because that's just like Him to do that. The night Jesus was betrayed by Judas, nobody names their kids Judas because of Judas, you know? Like, and if they did, we can redeem it. It's fine. I just mean, like, like if you don't know the story of Judas, there's, it's, it's, he's got a bad rap. Like, all the people who wrote the gospel accounts remembered their friend betraying them, and their humanity shows up in the letters, okay? Because it, just like if one of you betrayed me and I'm writing a letter about Jesus 30 years later, I'm like RJ, the one who betrayed us, in parentheses. Like, it, he, RJ would not do that because he loves Jesus, and that's fine. Okay, um, but, but literally, that's how Judas is talked about. It's Judas, and then there's like a parentheses, and it's like the betrayer uh, in the gospel accounts. It's super intense. Okay, but listen, look at how Jesus interacts with this, one of his best friends who's betraying him. It seems from the gospel accounts, okay, first of all, the night Jesus was betrayed by Judas, the night we celebrate when we talk about the, the Last Supper or communion or Eucharist or whatever you call it at your, your church settings growing up, this, this table, that night where this came to us from, 
Jesus broke bread with Judas and washed Judas' feet, knowing it was going to happen. Matter of fact, at that dinner table, he looked at Judas, one gospel account says, and he says, do what you're going to do quickly, Judas. And it, it seems to be, there's some mystery here, but it seems to be from the gospel accounts that he probably even shared what we would call communion with him that night. And when Judas, after selling Jesus as a slave to be murdered, one of his best friends, you might feel betrayed by your friends, you might even have been betrayed by your friends. Jesus knows what this is like. One of his best friends sold him for 30 pieces of silver. And he told these soldiers, you're going to know when the time is right and who the person is because I'm going to kiss him on the cheek. And so in this garden at midnight, this, this betraying friend approaches Jesus in the dark and kisses him on the cheek. And G- you know what Jesus says to him? Oh my gosh. He says, friend. He says, friend, do what you came to do. He still calls him friend. In Luke's gospel, we read that in this very moment, at that moment, Peter seeing these soldiers coming to grab Jesus, took out his sword and lopped off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away. And this soldier named Malchus, who's about to bind Jesus, Jesus picks up his ear. You might think this is wild, friends, but Christians believe Jesus rose out of the grave. Okay? He picks up his ear and he holds it to the side of Malchus's head and heals it. And then goes... When one of his best friends, Peter, that night, the same one with the sword, who's, this, this, is, this is exactly the kind of personality that comes to mind for me. And I don't know what that reveals about me, okay? But the person who's drawing the sword is also the person to deny him three times. Very dramatic, Peter. Peter denies him three times in Jesus' greatest hour of suffering. Well, Jesus makes time with Peter after the resurrection to specifically restore his dignity and his calling. It's like the very last bit of the Gospel of John is almost entirely about Jesus moving toward Peter after these betrayals. Jesus forgives. He, He just forgives, friends. And Jesus only does what the Father does What we see in Jesus is God on display. You should never think that Jesus just points to God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You are not going to show up in heaven or whatever, which I want to now get into a whole sermon about that theology, but but you're not going to show up in heaven and find Jesus saying, see God over there, I told you. He said to Philip, one of his friends, who said, show us the Father, and he goes, he goes, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Have I been with you so long you still don't know me? I realize that that is bonkers in our brain. For 1,700 years, Christians have been calling this Trinitarian theology. We believe in a God who is three in one, and we have to profess a humble mystery at not being able to explain that further because we refuse to say something we haven't been given permission to say or to not say something we've been told is true. And so we just say, when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If Jesus forgives, that means God forgives. 
Our God is a forgiving God. This is who he is. He did not make a decision at some point in history to become that way. He is that way. And you will not change his character. You will not change his disposition toward you. He loves you and he made you because he loves you and that's that. So we pray for his forgiveness, not because it's not ours, but so that we remember it and rest in it and stand on it and live from it. Just as we ask for bread in order to live, we ask for forgiveness in order to live as Christians, as little Christs who also forgive. We do not love you or our neighbors as we ought. Thank you, Jesus, that that doesn't keep you from loving us. Thank you, Jesus, that your love covers a multitude of sin. But we don't just pray to be forgiven. You'll notice up here, okay? We pray that we be forgiven as we forgive others. Forgive as we forgive those who sin against us or who trespass against us or forgive our debtors. And this could sound like forgiveness is somehow conditioned upon forgiving others, especially if you just read one sentence in the Bible and you don't know that elsewhere and all over the Bible, we are told that forgiveness is given by grace, that it is conditioned only upon the character of God and it is demonstrated forgiveness is and secured for us by the blood of Jesus and his death on the cross, which means it actually happened. It was secured for you. It's done. It is final. And every day we live under, with the opportunity to discover that truth again and to live out of that reality again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness, full stop. Forgiveness is offered and applied to us by grace. So what does this mean that we are taught to pray, forgive us as we forgive? If, that's, if all the rest of what I just said is true, if we receive forgiveness by grace, which means we don't earn it by something else we do, then what does this mean? And what's more, I already mentioned this, but this is the only line of the Lord's Prayer which has some commentary in the Bible. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What's going on here? Okay, I cannot and do not want to remove all the tension from this, but there are a couple of helpful insights I want to draw your attention to. I think are super important if you have any intention of following Jesus and adoring Him. First, Earlier in Matthew chapter 5, this comes from Matthew chapter 6. Earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you, and I want you to imagine this, like in your own life, for example, okay? Just imagine this. If you are going to offer something to God, whatever that is, in our context, it may be you're going to pray and you're going to give God thanks for something or something like this, okay? But you're going to offer something to God. And you realize someone, in that moment, you realize that someone has something against you. He doesn't say that you've done something wrong even. You realize someone has something against you. Jesus teaches this, friends, from Matthew chapter 5. He says, stop. First go and be reconciled with them. Then come back and finish your offering. Jesus has already taught, before we get to this prayer, he's already taught that on our end, 
peace with him requires peace with others. These things go together. God is at work, we are told, to reconcile all things to himself. In Jesus Christ, he has torn down the dividing wall between us and is making peace in all things in heaven and on earth. The peace and forgiveness of God is bound up with the peace and forgiveness that we have between us. John, the brother of Jesus, says it this way. He says, get ready, um, okay, if you say you love God and hate your brother or sister, then you are a liar and the love of God is not in you. That's a Bible verse. And I know that sounds heavy. I'm actually going to read it again, but then I want to point this out, Okay. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother or sister, you're a liar and the love of God is not in you. But this is how much God loves your neighbor. This is how much God loves your enemy. This is how much God loves your brothers and sisters. He wants you, he wants them, and he wants you with them. The center of the Lord's Prayer connects our own receiving of forgiveness with our own giving of forgiveness. Imagine if that's what the world knew about Christians. Can you imagine? Imagine if that's what they knew when they gathered together on Tuesday nights to worship God. That what if that what they knew is that their God was teaching them that in order to be at peace with Him, they got to be at peace with us so far as it depends on them. What if they knew that? And when we gathered like this, that we were fighting and praying and asking God to give us the strength and the resources that we need to go out as forgivers into this world. Forgiveness received and forgiveness given are connected. That's one thing to know about this tension. The second thing which may be helpful about this tension is that Jesus uses examples that people might be familiar with to help them understand God's relationship to them. So, so the similar teaching in Luke chapter 11, for example, Jesus asks his disciples, how much greater do you think God is than the best fathers on the earth? I mean, we, we have some bad dads and, and bad moms, and, but, but sometimes we have these examples, maybe often, actually, in fact, probably most often, in fact, throughout the world, we've got pretty good moms and dads. A lot of us keep being moms and dads probably because we think moms and dads would be kind of cool someday. Other reasons too. And Jesus goes, you know how like there are parents out there and many, maybe many parents, most parents, almost all parents, they don't give their kids like rocks when they ask for bread. Like if their kids ask for bread, they still often give them bread. How much, if, if you guys do that in your sinners, how much more do you think God loves you and will give you what you ask when you go to him? You see, Jesus does this a lot when he's teaching actually. He uses examples that we're familiar with to illustrate something about his relationship with us or God the Father's relationship with us. And he says, so this is the example here. If you already have examples of forgiveness and kindness towards your neighbors and a willingness sometimes, and think of your friend groups or maybe some of you in new core groups or your family members, brothers and sisters that are like siblings actually or something like this, maybe heroes of yours. If you sometimes have been willing to overlook sin, sometimes you've been willing to forgive them and not treat them like their worst moments, You're choosing to love them rather than to hold their sins against them. If that can happen in your life and you see that, how much more do you think God can offer forgiveness and kindness to us? 
Jesus assumes in this prayer that we who call God Father have already been at work to forgive people. And so he says, forgive as you forgive. You've been forgiving others. Trust that God forgives you too, but way better. And he forgave you first. In fact, your power and willingness to forgive comes from the fact that you've already received it from God. But the way we practice forgiveness for other people, and this is admitting the tension, friends, the way we practice forgiving other people, so for you, maybe think how you actually are in the process of forgiving others right now. At the very least, this is going to impact how you think God is forgiving you, at the very least. Because if we're asking God to forgive as we, for, as we forgive, but we don't forgive very well, that's kind of like calling on a curse upon us, you know what I'm saying? If I'm like, I'm holding bitterness against these people, God, forgive me as I forgive them, you know? Like, that's, that's, that's real rough. And so if you're not forgiving people well, you may want to resist praying this way. But then I think this is how good of a teacher Jesus is. He knows what's going to happen in this if you're paying attention. In his fine teaching, let him convict you. Stop right now at that altar. Go be reconciled. And then come back and say, God, would you forgive me like that? Go go after me. This teaching is so strong, in fact, that when Peter, sword-wielding, betraying, starter of the church, Peter, when he finally begins to grasp it, he balks and he looks at Jesus and he says, how many times, Jesus, do you actually expect us to forgive people? Seventy? Seventy? I mean, have any of you ever let anybody sin against you in the same way seventy times? That's a lot. Jesus says, 70 times seven, Peter. Which doesn't actually mean forgive people 490 times. But then at 491, good riddance. You know, that's not what this means. This is like a New Testament way of saying times infinity, you know. Outside of love, there's just no limit to forgiveness is the point. When this comes home, there is no limit to it. Outside of love itself, there is no greater work in the kingdom of God than the work of forgiveness. The work of receiving it, the work of giving it. We receive it by grace and we give it gracefully. Now, all that's left for us in the little time we have left tonight is to define it. And and interestingly, this is the shortest part. (laughs) Um, When I apologize to my daughter, Blythe, she always says the same thing to me. She's 12. She's um, amazing and so much. Um... When I apologize to her, she always, she's, she's my one child who literally says the exact same thing every time I apologize. She says, I forgive you, Daddy. And that's super sweet and really hard. Because what I want her to say every time is, it's okay, Daddy. What you did was not that bad. It's totally fine. Like, that's what I want her to say. And she says, I forgive you. Which means that she's acknowledging that I did actually do something wrong. And she's deciding in this moment not to hold that against me and let that be between our relationship. I've actually never, she's never, I think this is true, she's never said, I forgive you, and not initiated a move toward me in a hug. Isn't that interesting? To forgive doesn't mean to forget. To forgive doesn't mean things are okay. To forgive doesn't mean that we can pretend nothing happened. To forgive means to cancel debt. That's what it means. 
To forgive means to choose mercy over judgment. Justice might demand that I let you have it because you owe me a debt now because of your wrong. And so now I'm paying you back. My daughter deciding to forgive me means she's going, I'm not going to make you pay for it, Dad. I forgive you. Mercy over judgment. If I forgive you, it means my relationship with you is not going to be established by your wrongdoings or your evil or your sin. Forgiving you means my relationship with you is going to be established by terms other than your sin. I'm not going to make you pay for what you've done wrong. I'm going to forgive your wrongs. Forgiveness isn't pretending someone didn't do wrong. It's forgiving the wrong. I said it's not forgetting. Our sins actually impact, this is common sense, friends. Our sins impact the world. And there really are natural consequences for our sins. There are things which happen because of our sin and things that need to happen because of our sin in order to be able to establish some hope for common life together. That is real. That's different than making somebody pay and having our relationship be defined through their worst behavior. And so potentially, you could forgive me, but still decide that you're not going to continue to move toward me in some kind of intimacy right now because I'm not safe. I can forgive you for wrecking my truck every time I let you borrow it. I won't, make you, maybe, I won't make you pay for any relational debt for that. We're still tight. That's great. I might not even make you pay for some financial debt for that. But it doesn't have to mean that I let you borrow my truck again. You see? And so too with our sin. Our sin has natural consequences. God has decided that our relationship with Him is not going to be defined by our worst moments, but by who He is and who He has made us to be, though. And we are called to extend that kind of mercy and grace to others, And to understand that God forgiving our debts is intended to soften our hearts in such a way that we would never want to hold anyone else to theirs because we know what it's like to be freed. Now, I'm hesitant to say this because I want the focus of forgiveness to be on others right now. But when you let a root of bitterness grow in you, when you don't forgive others, it eats you alive. The scriptures tell us that we become defiled when we do that. I was talking with a friend tonight about this, and she said that she can see on people's bodies when they're holding on to bitterness and withholding forgiveness. She said, I can see it in my friend's faces that, they're, that they haven't forgiven. Not her, other people. Which is just another amazing reason to let debt go. To owe no one anything except for love, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13. And to release others from owing you anything. In this prayer, we look to God, not others, for this. God, bread, please. God, forgiveness, please. And the power to forgive others. It turns out I don't need others to forgive me. Though I may want it, I need the power to forgive them, though. Gosh, I'd love for you to forgive me for my wrongs. What I need is for God to know that God has forgiven me. That's what I need. And then out of that, I also need, as a follower of Jesus, to extend that forgiveness to you. And though I might want you to forgive me, it's not what I need. So we don't. We have not been given permission by this prayer to go up to somebody else. And and I've seen my kids do this. I'm sure I do this in ways that look a little bit more 
I get away with it more, you know? Um, but I've seen my kids say, you should forgive me, you know, or whatever. And I'm like, that just doesn't work that way, you know? Uh, it turns out that somebody's agency is, matters. And they, they don't have to forgive you. They don't. Jesus might be calling them to, but that's his business and theirs. What you've been called to do is seek forgiveness from God and offer forgiveness to others. Forgive them. Okay, forgiven ones. This is daily work. Because every day we will not love God and others as we ought. And every day others will not love us as they ought. So there is forgiveness at hand. And we are those ambassadors of reconciliation. Do you know that that's a title God wants for your life? He wants to give, I don't know what other, you know, Chick-fil-A red status you might want. I just learned about that yesterday. It's pretty exciting. Uh, I'm even allergic to chicken, and I was excited about it. Go figure. Uh, That threw you guys all off probably. I shouldn't have said that. Okay, but I, I don't know what other titles you long for some blue check on a thing or, or uh, some, some letters after your name or whatever else. One of the titles God wants for you is for you to be an ambassador of reconciliation who dares to believe that we are freely loved by God who holds no record of our wrongs and so we do the same for others. Our Father, we pray it would be so. Give us food. Give us forgiveness. And next week we will ask Him to give us faithfulness that we may make it to our end. And we do this every day. If you tonight are wondering specifically how to forgive others, maybe you got somebody specific that's come to mind as, we, as I've been talking, and you're like, man, that, that I don't, like, there's this thing, there's this thing. Or you've been wondering, how do you receive forgiveness yourself? Will you please, please let someone in? Don't, please don't isolate Please don't put yourself in situations where you're going to experience harm or you can't see a way out. I'll be up here after the service just hanging out if anybody wants to talk. We've got other pastors on our staff, Kirsten and Josh. Each of us have been learning in the school of Jesus' forgiveness for a long time and we would love to come alongside you. And we have pastoral residents and student leaders. Each and all of us would love to pray with you and listen, help you think through what it might mean in wisdom and in faithfulness to God to receive forgiveness or to give forgiveness in a way which promotes life and looks like the kingdom of God. Please don't try to do it alone if you don't know what this means. This prayer, if you come back, if this is your first time here, sorry, I'm I'm accessing some like first couple weeks sermons. This is a corporate prayer. Our Father, we're together in this. Please, let's do this together, which maybe that's a really important thing to to end on here, that we're not just asking God to teach us as individuals to forgive, but may we as a community receive forgiveness and be a people who maybe even more when we're together than when we're isolated one-on-one, we look and we act and we are people who forgive, like, like people who forgive. May your trust in God be expressed, friends, through the receiving and giving of forgiveness. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us.